0: Well, tonight I need a little time of uh, refreshing your memory, I think. I asked my family what they remembered was preached two weeks ago, because last week we had our soup and salad uh, meal in the evening, and so uh, it's been two weeks since we've been on this series, and they uh, weren't very uh, encouraging, we'll put it like that, in their memories. So let's back all the way up to what we're doing. We are looking not for uh, the weekly news kind of thing that we find many people doing in terms of their watches for Jesus' second coming, but the statements that are clearly made in Scripture about what it will be like um, at the Lord's return and what we should be looking for. And again, we find in Scripture not a uh, fine week-by-week week description coming up to it, uh, to Christ's return, but rather in some very large brush strokes, God paints out the future, uh, gives us some big, big things that no one really can miss to tell us that things are uh, coming to a close in this age, the church age, um, and entering into the age of Christ's personal reign. So we looked at those, we started off with the signs of Israel, and of course they were pretty big. We have a nation now called Israel on the earth, that wasn't the prophecy, it was a precursor to it. The prophetic statement was that they would be overflowing their boundaries, that there would be a peace treaty between her and her neighbors, which still hasn't come, that she will be greened, that is that uh, she will go from a land of desolation to a land of, of uh, production and of... Uh, of lots of growth and things like that, that she will be peopled, that she'll be gathered from all the nations. And again, we saw that not happening in the 1940s, but rather happening in the 1990s is when we see that really coming to fruition. The 1940s in terms of Israel becoming a nation was really important, but it wasn't the fulfillment of the prophetic statement. The prophetic statement, she'll be gathered from all the nations. And by the way, just to kind of throw this out at you, Um, uh, Just recently, a group has arrived, uh, the first 3,000 of a group that is arriving that they have identified as the children of Ephraim, Um, and they are coming from, of all places, guess what country they're coming out of? Some of you may have seen that in the news, if you get the right kind of news, you're not going to guess what country they're coming out of. Oh, just guess. Iran. No. (coughs) They're coming out of India. Okay, Um, Eastern India, kind of in the Burma area. They have been practicing Judaism all this time. They don't look like what you would say. They look like they're from that region. (coughs) But they have been practicing Judaism. And through a lot of research, investigation, this is of the tribe of Ephraim, And they are now being transported back into Israel. Uh, Some 3,000 just arrived, with another several thousands coming. And so, uh, when we talk about being gathered from the nations, it truly is an international work. So, that's been going on. Again, a big, big thing that you can't really miss. Um, And yet, we looked at 1948 and said, oh, they're a nation, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. But no, the prophecy says they'll be gathered from the nations. It'll be a land flowing with milk and honey again. They'll be overflowing their boundaries, uh, which will cause some conflict. And then, of course, ultimately, we're looking for a seven-year peace treaty. And we looked at some other things there. We then looked at the statements of God and prophecy with regard to the nations. What are we looking for in terms of what countries is God going to be identifying or isolating uh, as the nations from which um, are going to bring the rebellion against him uh, that we should anticipate. And again, we find a very carefully presented picture of the nations going all the way back to Egypt um, and going all the way through the Old Testament period, the intertestamental period, into Rome and then into John's future, Daniel's distant future, uh, to talk about an intermediate empire that has come and has done what it's supposed to have done And then a final empire that the repeated statement over and over again is that that, uh, Christ himself will destroy that nation. And we have seen the evidences laid out there. And again, um, the confusion in the prophetic world where we take kings and make them into nations, we take nations and and make them individuals, um, when prophecy doesn't do that. Beasts are always nations and empires, crowns and heads are... Kings and sometimes representing their nations, but generally individuals. And so we looked at that and we see, uh, not on the horizon, but rather in our past, many of the things that God said would be the evidence to identify that last nation on earth that will oppose God, uh, we've seen them already occurred. We've already seen a nation that's drawn out. By supplanting, not by conquering, but by supplanting three other nations in her territory, uh, basically taking over territory they once possessed without destroying their predecessor, its predecessor. Uh, a nation that has brought down fire in the sight from heaven in the sight of men, a nation that, is for, that made talking pictures, and that was the big one. So those are some of the big elephants in the room. The Bible says, look out for this country, a country that Habakkuk describes as in great debt, um, uh, unprecedented debt, and yet even though in their debt, they don't stop consuming. They just keep taking up more and more and more. In fact, they consume everything from the other nations. They're just gobbling it up. And so we saw that as the United States fulfilling that role, having done all those things just as has been described. Again, and we're not stretching the text and we're not looking around for little small things. These are huge things that are obvious to everyone. The Bible says when you see a nation like that, um, that has uh, brought down fire in the sight of men from heaven, when you see a nation that has made images talk and come to life and then teach with them, uh, when you see these things taking over the economy and, and the debt that's involved there, no that that is the one, that is the final nation. So we looked at the, the prophecy of the nations. We have now been in the field of the, of the signs of sin. God says that there's going to be a kind of world that uh, is going to be characterized by sinfulness. And we looked at the historical means of that. Uh, we looked at uh, <clears throat> the times of God's judgment in the past which included the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, Egypt, Israel, Assyria, and Judah. We looked at those examples of the direct working of God to pour out His wrath. What is it that gets God's goat? What is it that goads Him into action, into judgment? Because that is going to be the conditions for God to pour out His wrath for seven years um, that's described in Revelation. And so we looked at those and we saw these indicators. Uh, among the nations, among the people, uh, we saw a list of things we're going to get into tonight. Uh, among God's people, Israel and Judah, we saw a different set of sins. And then two weeks ago we looked at, are these sins in the church? And that is where we concluded, is we're not looking just at the world's sin, the world has always been sinful. And we're going to talk about that a little bit, but it's when it comes into the church... And when the church not only practices these things, and I would contend that throughout the whole 2,000 years of church history, you can certainly find individuals within the church who have practiced these sins. But what we find is that it is being adopted by the church, not as sin at all, but as something that they approve of and even recommend. And we have come into a period of church history um, where that is the case, where these sins that... While they have been present, they have never been approved of by the church. And yes, we know that there was rampant immorality in Rome uh, among the papacy in the middle years in the, of the church age. Um, it's well documented, um, but uh, it was still condemned by the church. But now we come to a period of time when we are letting those things rule the church where we are encouraging it and even uh, teaching it as not only allowable, but glorifying to God somehow. And we have perverted this this truth. And so we have seen idolatry and we have seen uh, uh, the apostasy. And it's, again, the principle that we saw with the nations as well as with Israel is that God doesn't judge it upon its pinnacle, but when it peaks... Um, so to speak, when it finally is enough, God takes a generation to bring it to judgment. And so if we are looking for the end times to happen today, we are looking back for an apostasy that would have happened a generation ago. 60, 70, 80, 100 years prior to this day-to-day. We looked at apostasy the way the Bible does. That the first step of apostasy is to deny the Bible. That we twist God's Word and say, it is not the authoritative and errant truth that I have to live my life by. And we found that that has been over a generation ago that we have fought that fight and it still is being fought today. Largely, it's being lost, but it's still there. Um, it doesn't mean that there, that no one believes in the Bible anymore. It just seems that, that mainstream Christianity, those who claim to be the people of God, are by and large denying the veracity of god's word the inerrancy it's it's a divine origin uh, they're picking and choosing we looked at the role of textual criticism and modern translations even to a degree uh, and so we find that apostasy that god said would happen in addition in the church we find idolatry the health wealth gospel uh we find uh, The self-love psychology, Uh, we find the women's movement, all of these. uh, We looked at uh, the moral decay of trying to be like the nations, wanting to be like the world. And we talked about the churches using their seeker models. We pursued uh, Uh, false teaching like process theology, liberation theology, modernity, emergent church, um, and the mainstream of cults and false religions that today we're not even allowed to use the word cults. Um, and that's really come out of and been born out of this idea of mainstreaming things. And then we're also seeing the consumerism that we saw in Israel particularly, but also in Judah. And we find that today, Christianity is being most often treated as a consumer group, as a market, if you will, as a voting block at times, uh, we're being viewed in a social manner rather than in a religious or, or a spiritual manner. And so we see that uh, the church has really uh, bought into this wholesale, but it goes back to a time where we began tearing pages out of our Bibles. And we get to decide what is and isn't God's truth. So tonight, that's all introduction, that gets us to tonight. Do any of you remember any of that stuff? Okay, Whew. I'm relieved. Okay, and so just a little quick things of what is in the church today that we have seen some of these fads coming and going that just are, and some of them are prevalent today. We have experientialism, we have the, the things like the Da Vinci Code and the Health, Wealth, Gospel, the Prayer, Jabez, You have All these things, the proliferation of denominations going on, um, they give no evidence of moving back to anything. Not moving back to truth, they are moving forward into more sin. And so most of the denominational divisions occurring today are the result of apostasy. And either one group wanting to call something good that God calls evil, or another group recognizing that that's the condition and wanting to move out of it. Um, one thing I did not touch on two weeks ago that I wanted to was in 2 Peter. So if you'll turn your Bible to 2 Peter. And this is kind of a good transition passage as well into what the main thrust of tonight is, which is what about the world's sin? Just like in the flood, just like with Sodom and Gomorrah, just like with Assyria, what does the world do to get God mad enough to implement His time of judgment but before we get to that, let's look at Second Peter. This is a good transition. Second Peter chapter 3. And again, Peter says in verse 1, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first. Okay, so he's going to set out a Criteria of the End Times. He says that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. And here's what it's going to sound like. Are you ready? Verse 4. They'll be saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget. It's kind of an interesting idea, isn't it? You willfully forget, I will not remember. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So we have this description that is not only of the church, but of the world too. And uh, we're going to see that overlay here tonight. Uh, Where's the promise of his coming? Jesus, is a, there is no end to the world. Things are just going to keep going the way they've always been going. Uh, the, the sun comes up and the sun sets, the stars in their courses. It's been the same all the way back from the beginning. And basically it's a denial that God is genuinely at work in the world that God was there at the beginning, that God has had anything really actively that He has done in between, and that God certainly is not going to bring things to an end. Basically, it's an absolute denial that we have a God that is involved in the world. Rather, they view God as kind of this distant entity that kind of wound the clock and walked away. And that He's not coming back, He's not looking in on it, He's not really interested in what's going on here at all. And they're willfully forgetting the truth that they know. And how do they know that truth? Well, Romans tells us how they know that truth. Because all creation declares God's character. And they don't want to see it. And they want to be blinded to it. And instead, they want to believe a lie that fits their own interests, their own lusts, their own desires. And they want to walk that way. And so, to walk according to my own lusts, I have to have a philosophy in terms of deity that makes him far off, uninvolved, and basically that he's not going to hold me accountable. He's not really interested at all. And so, everything is going to continue to be the way it's always been. And uh, many uh, before me have come to this passage and recognized a philosophy, and it's not a science, it's a philosophy that's been introduced by a guy named Darwin, and really even before him, by others that have been around for a hundred years or so, uh, that has come in and said, no, there wasn't a beginning, there's not going to be an end, matter is eternal, um, it is our God, and they worship the creature instead of the creator, they worship creation, and they, they call themselves evolutionists, among other things, and Fundamental to their teaching is that you can go back billions and billions and billions of years into the past, and we can hopefully trust in these things that we never observe in our current world, but apparently happened back there. It will go on for billions and billions and billions of years, and so something that we should be concerned about today is that, you know, just a few hundred million years from now, the sun is going to burn out. How many of you are concerned? Why not? We only have a couple hundred million years left. And our sun is going to be gone. Aren't you worried? Shouldn't you be doing something about it? Don't you have a plan? No. But this is their idea. Well, if this continues, because their their concept of creation is that it is. Going along, it will never change. And the question is, has it come into the church? And Oh yes, it has. Um, when I order uh, things from, for my library things books, when I order books from my library, usually reference books, um, I'm very careful and I have them send them to me, and I regularly send them back um, because something amazing is happening to reference volumes. And that is that while their authors are were very fundamental guys, I try to get reference volumes that are over a 100 years uh, in terms of the guys that first organized it, Bible handbooks, things like that. And so I ordered a Bible handbook that I wanted to give out to our graduates one year. And I got them in, I started looking through it, and I noticed that it had a modern editor. Okay? So here I have... A guy, I know this man, I know his writing, I know he is a godly, fundamental uh man who believed God's word. I know it is a reliable name. But here's this edition of his book with modern editors. What has he done? What have they done to it? Well, like every time I get a reference book, I go to about four or five passages. And you can imagine what they are. I go to Genesis 1, I go to Genesis. Oh, six, seven, five. I go into uh, uh, Exodus and I go into the Gospels, and I'm looking how they handle the historical things of creation, the flood, the Exodus, and Christ, specifically his birth and the miracles. And here I open up this historically very reliable reference volume, and what do I find when I turn to the very first passage? And I didn't have to re- read any more of the rest of the book. Because here is this description of creation. It certainly wasn't six 24-hour literal days. And they introduced the day-age theory. They introduced all of these evolutionary theologies in this, at one time, very reliable reference volume. This is this is something that's just supposed to be a reference tool for you to use in your study of God's Word. So I sent it back, and I and if you go to CBD website, you will find my name in there, and you will find me writing that that's what I don't just send it back. I tell them why, and I write it in their website why, and I post it on reader uh, feedback or whatever. Um, what happened? The editor got in there, a modern editor. Why? Because in the last hundred years, we have become wishy-washy on God's Word, which means that we can go into a text like Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we don't view it as truth. We view science as truth, and we believe what they told us in school, what they tell us in school. They didn't used to tell us that. That everything has been around for billions and millions of years. And we believe that. We come to God's Word and say, Oh, God's Word's got to fit into my science. Instead of saying my science has to fit in God's Word. And if my science disagrees with God's Word, my science is wrong. But we haven't done that in Christianity, we've reversed it. And so we've manipulated God's Word to fit man's thinking. And so there are many churches today that are not teaching a literal creation by the Word and by the power of God, nor a flood. And Peter describes this, that they willfully forget that and they deny it. They won't even deny that, that there was a universal flood. Even though they are presented with evidence, because the men do not wish to recognize that there is a God that we are accountable to. And So the Bible says in the last days, this will not just be occasionally, this will be everywhere, it will be the new normal. Not only in the world, but in the church, and so we find it today, unlike any other day and we have done a full swing i want to and, and yes, we can go back and say, "Oh, the church, look what they did to Galileo and others and their theories and and imprisoning them and and for their uh, search for truth. And so then we take that history and uh, we bring it forward and we say, well, the church is just as erroneous today in countering evolution with God's Word. And now we are in a time period where we have come alongside and, and believe what men say more than what God says. And we have a God that's disengaged from His creation and not one that we have to be accountable to. And so it's when men say there is no God, or God is so far off, He's not going to intervene. He's not going to judge us. And though you preach for a hundred years like Noah, no one's going to listen. Because they just don't believe He's out there. So what is it that is going to put God in a frame of mind and will to say, I'm going to judge the nations? We see it in the church, and we see that the church has been in that state of apostasy for well over a generation. What about our world? Has our world been moving in that direction as well? And I'm going to take you back to remind you of the four things that we saw in uh, the world when God judged them through the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Assyria, as well as Egypt. I left out Egypt earlier. So those four times we looked at, here are the principal things that God was so angered over that He judged the world. Um, There was other things, but here's the principal things. Um, He looked upon violence. Violence. He saw the violence among men and said, this has got to stop. Violence not only um, in terms of against created order, but violence against individuals, certainly against children. Not only murder as violence, but all violence, but even a mindset of violence. Where violence is not only perpetrated, because it's always been perpetrated, the violence that is promoted, that is acceptable by society, that is even glorified by society. And when God sees this kind of violence, He says enough. The second one, I'm just going to go through them very quickly to make sure I get them all in, and then we're going to go back and see are we seeing this. Homosexuality and immorality, I'm going to combine them together. And of course, our test case there really is, is Sodom. And And again, we are not talking about the exercise of this because there's always been those who have engaged in this uh, sin. But like Sodom and Gomorrah, it will become of general acceptance, even, again, of encouraging, being taught and glorified. When we see that level of, of immorality, that level of perversity. God is ready to judge. With Egypt, it was the enslavement and the murder of God's people. That when the world begins to oppose the people of God, there comes a time when God says, enough. That is the last one of mine that you are going to slaughter. And then fourthly, Particularly pointed to Egypt and really, or not Egypt, but to Assyria. And this one God doesn't tolerate for very long at all. And that is boasting against God. Of all the sins, it seems that this one, kind of like the sin of Judah, where they just did whatever they wanted and they defined what was right and wrong instead of God. We're not going to do it God's way, we're going to do it our way. And again, we looked at that in the church and when the church starts saying we're going to do it our way instead of God's way, God's way doesn't work anymore. It wasn't really written for this society. Um, We've got to do it the marketing genius's way. Um, Well, that doesn't take God very long after that's spoken and that's the attitude before He judges. Well, in terms of the nations, their sin of immediacy is boasting. When you start hearing... The nations boast against God. Give us all you got. Throw at us whatever you have. We will stand against you. You will not be able to knock us off of our pedestal. So these are the four areas of sin in the world where God has said that's enough. And they are reiterated for us in the prophecies as well with regard to uh, particularly the last one. That at the very last days, what you will hear extensively is this boasting against God. And we'll get to that here very soon. But let's back up and do them in order. Violence. The aspect of violence, of course, we see prevalent amongst us. Um, and in fact, it is what is disconcerting about it. Uh, we have tried to moderate that. And if there's anything that we teach through entertainment, it is these two areas of violence and immorality. We teach it, we instruct in it, we ingrain it into our psyche, into our subconscious. We have been plastering it into our minds as a culture um, for quite a while. Um, it started out fairly, quote-unquote, innocent in my youth with uh, cartoons. Um, and now cartoon violence has become... Reality violence. Now we have real people doing that and we have video game people doing that and we are engaging ourselves in its activity. Not just in the Western world. If you think that that's just an American kind of thing, um, you're wrong. And again, we're not talking about just violence in America, but in the world. And so when you see uh, things going on where you find children, 12, 10, 14 who are willing to strap on uh, explosives on their body, walk into a crowded mall and push a button. Okay, That's what's going on out there in the world. You might say, well, it's not happening here. No, here's what our children do. They arm themselves with as many rounds as they can carry with several weapons, and they walk in and start blasting their teachers and fellow students to oblivion. Yes, it is pervasive in our society, globally, this violence. And not only that, but in our warfare it has become more and more violent, even though we think that we are technically above that, and um, we're going to be very selective in it. But if you look at all warfare that's gone on in the last generation, what you will find different than prior generations in the last 100 years, how genocidal we are on a level unprecedented you go back and you see how the romans and the greeks and the and the persians and the medes and the you look at them and they will go in and they don't slaughter everybody they take out the leadership they conquer the people and they bring you into their country they bring you in. They want you to intermarry. They're going to displace you. They want to bring you into, sometimes even into the inner courts of it. And that's why we find guys like Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the very courts of Babylon as a conquered people. But it's really in these days that we find the genocidalness that's being perpetrated time and time and time again Globally. That we want all the Jews dead. We want all the Serbs dead. We want all the Shiites dead or the Sunnis. We want them all dead. Violence is rampant on a level and on a scale that is unprecedented in history in our day from our society in its microcosm in your community, where we have acts of violence being perpetrated against children by children, against children by their own adults. And we have taken almost no steps to stop the trend. And if you don't believe me, you need to get out Go over to the skate park on a Saturday with the men that are going out there, listen to the music, watch the videos, play the games, and you will discover just how violent it all is. And violence is now not only practice, it's always been practice, but now it's acceptable. And now it's not enough to have boxing. It's not enough to have wrestling. Now you have to have a cage and two men thrown into it and fight till one of them gives up. This morning I told you that Marx was wrong about religion being the opiate of the people. Rome knew what the opiate of the people was and it's entertainment. Entertainment is the opiate of the people. That's why Rome used it. They could get away with anything just by building great big Colosseums and having people go in there with their bloodlust and having it fulfilled and entertained in the Colosseum. It produces an ignorant and distracted population, allows you to do anything. And we have mirrored them perfectly. We have an ignorant, distracted population that believes anything that comes down the pike and just doesn't care. They are dulled in their senses. Then, of course, we all know what's going on with the moral condition of our society. With homosexuality being mainstreamed into even some of our denominations within Christendom, of saying we can't set that as a barrier to not just being practiced but we can't set that as a barrier for even our pastors. I don't know how more you can accept something or glorify it than to put your man in the pulpit or woman in the pulpit in that capacity having that sin in their life. We are well down this line. We are in a society that has glorified it and again we see it extensively in our entertainment, um, but we are Sometimes I talk to young people and they, they, I think a lot of them believe that the majority of people are homosexual. You almost come off with the feeling that that, and that everyone is, or that everyone should at least explore it. And that is what is being propagated in our schools, not just in this country. <laughs> it's somehow that it's, uh, that you are being inhibited if you're not allowed to explore this area of sin. And we find Satan's assault on the family is <laughs> he has long won that battle. Long since won that battle, not only in the world but in the church too. And so, immorality reigns from east to west in our world. And when God sees that, judgment is coming. A cry goes up to God against a world like it did against that city. A cry goes up to it. And when God visits it, He will visit and see it's evil and know to judge it. And then, of course, there's the opposition against God's people, and the prophecy describes it as being unique within one nation, that in the nation of the end times, there will be a wearing down of the saints rather than an attack on the saints, and that's really what we're seeing in our country. Um, But the opposition is very real in other places, where we are finding the slaughter of Christians, again, the norm, um, and we don't find anyone in our political systems in the UN or anyone else very worked up about it. If it were to happen um, to others, if uh, such uh, rampant slaughter of others were to occur, oh, there would be huge uprival, up, upheavals and we'd have to jump in there and, and resolve these issues. But if it's against Christians, we find no response. I found no response from our country to Egyptians killing Coptic Christians in Egypt. No response to the United States. None. Why? Because Christians are the identified most dangerous group in our country. I'm probably on a list somewhere. And that's what our homeland security has issued time and again. Again. Even though Christians have taken it to task, say, how can you put us on that list? But here's the list. And number one on the list are Christians who believe the Bible and believe in literal prophecy. How does it feel to be on the top of the terrorist list of your own country? Because you believe the Bible. You believe that what the Bible says about prophecy is absolutely true. You're considered the highest threat to our country. I am. And so we have this opposition, and this has been building and building, and we can go back a generation ago uh, when we started extracting faith from our society. And of course, it was on very near my birthday, 50 years ago, that we took prayer out of schools um, and made that statement in this country. Um, but again, we see this over and over again, country after country, even in India. Here of late, we can't send support for the propagation of the gospel. It's okay, they'll let you be a Christian there, but as soon as you try to win someone else to Christ, you've committed a crime in India now. You're not allowed to propagate your faith. It's okay for the Hindus, it's okay for the Muslims, it's okay for the Buddhists, but not you Christians. And this is true of country after country after country has taken this position against God's people. And then lastly, this last sin of the nations that has brought God to an end point has been boasting. A declaration against God. Do your worst, we can take it. That as God initiates judgment, that instead of responding by repentance, our response is, if anything, towards God accusative. That is, you had no right to do this to us. How could you do this to us? And it's pointing a finger at God. But ultimately, for the Assyrians, it's saying, your God cannot save you. You must trust in us. When you find the nation saying that, including God's people, your God can't be dependent upon, can't be trusted, you're going to have to look to us. Even though we can't control the weather, we can't control the heavenly bodies, we can't control earthquakes, but we are your saviors. We are the ones to go to. And we will get us out of these predicaments. We'll get ourselves there. And this is the claim of the nations in the last days, this boasting against God, that we will resolve this. We actually believe that we are doing something with regard to climate change. Think about that for a minute. We actually think we can control it. How silly. How silly. We have boast after boast within society against God, taking His role and saying, we'll do it. God says, I'm the one that sets up kings and kingdoms." He says, no, you won't. We will. God says, I'm the one that will control the wind and the waves. And He says, it doesn't matter. We will. God describes a time of pestilence and famine and disease. And we say, no, we'll find a solution our way. God says He's the author of life. And we say, no, we are. And these boasts against God are not new. We're not waiting for them. They are the sins of our nations today. And so we wait for nothing really other than the direct opposition to God when they see His hand. Uh, And we, I think, are beginning to see some of those birth pains going on in nature itself. And instead of Dropping to our knees in repentance and remorse, we find a hard hearted, stiff necked response saying, No, this has nothing to do with God and his favor or disfavor. So Christ is coming as judge over the sin, not only of His people, but of the nations. And we have entered into a period of time with the depth of perversity that has been visited four other times in the Bible with God's judgment. Again, not the exercise of this perversity, but the glorification of these perversities. This... Is unprecedented. That all these areas are applauded, encouraged, taught by culture after culture on this planet through a medium that we call entertainment, which isn't entertaining at all. It is there to teach. Habakkuk said it right. The talking picture is there to teach. And what it's teaching is sin. It's not just okay. It's great fun. And you watch your shows. If you can stomach them, I wouldn't encourage it. Think back. Where does the godly Christian fit in? Oh, there are the fanatics that are weird and have no fun and... Are to be laughed at or at best ignored. So Israel, Judah, Assyria, Egypt, Sodom, and the world treated its prophets of old, right before God wiped their laughs off their face collectively. So we are anticipating Christ's coming. Very exciting to us who are believers. We understand what's going to move him to his coming. And I'm just going to read this one passage. This what is the end in Revelation chapter six? What is the period of time? It says he opened the fifth seal, saw under the altar the souls of those who've been slain, killed for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. They cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them and said to them that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Um, This is all we're waiting for. Yes, our redemption, our being caught up is an exciting thing for us, but let's not forget what is the motive of God's coming is to judge. Which means there has to be something to judge. And those things that we see in the Scriptures are prevalent in the manner that described in the Scriptures in the church and the world. And so He is coming as judge. He is extracting us... (laughs) not just because He loves us, He's extracting us because we're in the way of His judgment. Kind of like Noah. Get in the boat! Come on! Get in the boat! Because I'm going to break it open. And essentially Christ comes. He doesn't come to establish His kingdom first. He comes to get us out of the way so that He can judge the world. And so when we see the signs of the times... This is a sign that we don't talk about very much. Signs of sin. But it is probably the most important sign. Because there's no rationale for God to come if the world is under a global revival. If the world is moving towards righteousness, if the church is doing a bang-up job, there's no reason for Christ to come. But we're not seeing that. We won't see it. There will not be a revival. The reason I think we haven't had a revival is because we haven't been praying for it. It's because we've been praying for the wrong thing. We we weren't alive to begin with. You can't revive what's never been alive. We should have been praying for repentance. Nobody's praying for repentance. They're praying for revival. As though we are all okay, we just need to be invigorated a little bit. Now revival comes when men preached repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that is not a message being preached today by many. And so there will be no great movement because there is no great preaching of repentance anymore. And so all that is left is judgment. And that judgment will start the instant the church is raptured. In fact, I think among the sounds we'll hear not only the trumpet, but we're going to hear the distant movement of the sixth seal, even as we go. Even as... Lot and his family were told, don't look at it. You'll hear it. You'll know it's happening. Don't look at it. That's how near it is. As soon as they're gone, boom, judgment. As soon as we're gone, judgment. And the world is ready. They're filling up their sin. And it doesn't need to get worse. It's already worse. We have nothing in the area of sin that we are looking for to be filled up. We are simply waiting God's patience. That's it. And from his indication in Scripture, it should be about any time that he's just fed up. 70 to 100 years is the most he waits in Scripture. That's his pattern. I anticipate that pattern being used Well that's why he taught it to us. Let's pray.